MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Heading right into the holiday season, hospitals are being pushed to the brink as we see RSV, COVID, and the flu infecting people at high rates. We're also seeing a continued staffing shortage in the healthcare industry that's causing a replay of what we saw during the height of the pandemic. A slew of nursing home closures is also pushing more people into the hospital system. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Sabrina Molly, health and science reporter at The Washington Post. It's just compounded by all these respiratory illnesses hitting every hospital at once. And unlike the height of the coronavirus pandemic, staffing shortages have gotten worse in these past two and a half years due to the fact that many of these health and medical providers are either one getting burned out or two have gone into non-hospital fields. So working in the private sector for maybe a doctor's office or something with better hours. So we're seeing a lot of these healthcare providers just leaving the hospital setting in general. Yeah, one of the things that we've seen with the hospital workers is while COVID cases have kind of dipped down a little bit and some of that fervor calmed down a little bit, really hospital workers never stopped. I mean, they've been pushed really to the edge for all of this time now. And, uh, you know, uh, you spoke to a number of people saying, you know, people just don't want to work in that fast-paced, anxiety-inducing environment of emergency rooms. They're looking at other things and the mood towards them has also changed. You know, they're sometimes they're um, uh, getting threatened with violence and all that. It's, it's a very big uh, mood shift from at the height of the pandemic when everyone was praising them as heroes and whatnot. Right. And the American Health Medical Association said that one in five doctors plan on leaving the field within two years. And in September, more than half a million people in the healthcare and social services sectors quit their positions in September, meaning they quit those specific hospital positions. So they might have gone to other opportunities, but it's just a mass exodus of healthcare workers. 
let's talk a little bit more about the respiratory viruses we're facing. So RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, that's affecting uh, children a lot more right now. We're seeing pediatric hospitals fill up, but obviously then there's COVID and the flu. We're seeing flu numbers go up in big, big numbers. And what uh, a lot of these hospitals are having to do is kind of break out even the old COVID tents and, and uh, you know how they triaged patients before. They're just so backlogged with people and so many people that they're having to adjust kind of the, at, at the way they were operating during the pandemic. Right. And just to clarify, while RSV is being circulated amongst pediatric patients right now, it does affect adults as well, specifically people who are older or people who are immunocompromised. So we're definitely seeing a majority of the pediatric patients, but there are a lot of older adults who are experiencing these respiratory illnesses like RSV as well. What about when we're looking at nursing homes? You write up in the article about how this is kind of a, a big problem. There's overcrowding in hospitals because of people that were displaced from nursing homes. So nationally, nursing homes have been closing and the number is expected to increase. The year goes on and in the coming years. And another reason for that is the staffing shortages in nursing homes. During the pandemic, 327 nursing homes are shut down and that's over 12,000 residents to be displaced. So when you have elderly patients who are going into hospitals to be treated for XYZ and then have to be discharged to a long-term care facility or nursing home and they have no place to go, that bottleneck is just going to get worse. And the beds are just going to be lacking because first they're not enough staff to take care of them. And then we have these patients who are just sitting here waiting around to be transported to other facilities. What are we hearing as far as when health experts are talking about getting your vaccines, whether it be for COVID, whether it be for flu, that'll kind of spare you at least the most severe symptoms, hopefully, of getting either of these illnesses. But really, despite getting high vaccine numbers out there, it's still not going to fix the entire situation, right? As we mentioned, a lot of it has to do with staffing shortages. But what are we looking at on the vaccine front right now, at least? Well, there's been a lackluster uptake of the new Omicron-specific booster for the coronavirus. So that lends into the part of, you know, like you said, contracting severe illnesses. So people are just not getting vaccinated for these viruses, which would prevent hospitalization, would prevent severe illness. And the numbers this year have just been not as strong as they have been for COVID in the past. And right now, there's been 146 million doses of flu vaccine. So those numbers are, I'm not exactly sure how, what the increase is from last year, but because people are out and about more transmission of viruses, they're just going to, it's just going to be the situation of interacting with more people, kind of traveling for the holidays and just being around people who potentially could have one of these viruses. Sabrina Molly, health and science reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. We're starting to see more people adopt the technology, and electric vehicles are continuing to grow into the mainstream of car buying. EVs are the fastest-growing segment of the auto market, with sales jumping 70%. Gas-powered cars still account for most of the new car market, but people are increasingly turning to battery-powered cars to save money on maintenance and fuel, making them their daily drivers, especially as we see the prices start coming down. For more on this, we'll speak to Peter Evis, business reporter at The New York Times. That's the theory. I mean, the problem is, is there's just not enough of those. And the auto companies much prefer to produce more expensive, larger electric vehicles because as with gasoline cars, the margins on those are going to be significantly, the profit margins are going to be a lot fatter on, on the bigger cars. And so we do have a lack of medium price range electric vehicles. That said, 
we found that among the respondents, there are a lot of people who bought used electric cars, obviously for a lot cheaper than a new one. And they were very happy with those too. And typically, because they were older cars, they didn't have quite the same range, which means the ability to drive a certain distance on a, on a certain charge as some of the newer ones, but they still love them even so. Tell me a little bit about the geographic changes, too, because California, places like California, right, uh, have a lot of electric vehicles registered, but we're starting to see that shift as well, too, where you know more people in other parts of the country are really coming on board. Definitely. I mean, I see it even before we did this story, I would see it in New York a lot not just on, you know, regular private passengers driving around in their Teslas. If I look at my Uber app and I open it up and I and I want to pick like this thing called Uber Green, which is, you know, you can get a kind of a hybrid or electric car pick you up instead of a gasoline car. A lot of those cars are, are Ubers. So a lot of people who are just regular Uber drivers now have Teslas and they'll probably branch out as well into the other ones as they come on, on board. But yes, in the story, what we discovered, there were a lot of respondents from outside of California some, you know, a lot of them from, you know, like some of them from the Midwest. And what these people were saying was, interestingly, because outside of California and particularly like some of the main roads in the Northeast, the charging networks are not great. They're sort of almost non-existent. And so that's where you're going to see some frustration is that people will spend a lot of money for a, you know, a nice new electric car. And they think looking at the numbers in the publicity that they'll be able to take their kid to college, you know, 300 miles away, but really they can only get like 150 miles once you take into account everything that's on the car and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's geographical diversifying happening, but the charging networks have a long way to go to catch up in these newer areas. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that example you were just giving, the family that was taking their daughter to uh, Michigan State, I believe, Michigan, uh, Michigan yeah, yeah. State University, and they did their research and said, we're going to char- stop here, charge there, but they didn't really account for all the extra weight in the car, which would start draining the battery a little bit more. So, right. uh, you know, they, they ran into a few problems there. Yeah, no, that's the sort of thing that you hear again and again and again, like, you know, somebody has to go and see a relative 400 miles away and they think they can do it. It's really cold weather. They then turn off the heater and put a blanket over them and so they can make sure they make it. And so generally what we're finding is electric cars at this stage, and I'm sure it will change over time, is that they're usually like a second car or a third car, which was the case in one of the examples in our story, you know, where. But again, like what happens is when somebody has an electric car, they tend to use that a lot more than their gasoline car. They maybe save the gasoline car for those much longer trips. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just to finish off that example of those uh, parents taking their daughter, they ended up having to rent a van <laughs> to finish out right, the trip. Right. So that's Which quite unfortunate. Yeah. But but you're right. Yeah. In those cases, right, and, and uh, you know, to the point of the story, right, coming into the mainstream. So people are getting the electric vehicles and it's becoming their daily driver. But for those longer right. trips, those other things where we're not unsure of the infrastructure, yeah, then they have that backup gas-powered vehicle. But by and large, you know, the daily driver thing, which is the most important thing, right? That's the one you're really yeah. spending money on, really spending the gas on, all that. And that's really where it's becoming important. Peter Evis, yeah. business reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no, always. Thank you very much, Oscar. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a few years ago, betting on sports was regulated to Nevada and a handful of other locations in the U.S., but after a flurry of action from lobbyists and the gambling industry, 31 states now allow sports gambling either online or in person. Sold by possible tax revenue, many states have come on board, sometimes with very favorable tax breaks for gambling companies. An investigation by the Times finds that in many cases, that revenue hasn't lived up to projections. For more on how sports betting has expanded so fast, we'll speak to Eric Lipton, investigative reporter at the New York Times. What you see, I think, to some extent, it's like the fact that when you had kind of Uber and the fact that you can geolocate the technology that came with high-speed connections to your phone and allows people to start to think about the idea of doing live betting on your phone for sports. And I think that what happened was Daily Fantasy Sports and FanDuel and DraftKings showed how the phone could become a live gambling casino. And really the technology that came together just not too long ago that allowed the phone to be such a center of gaming. And once FanDuel and DraftKings through daily fantasy sports and starting in 2014, 2015, showed the potential that phones could offer. Uh, and then New Jersey passes a law that legalizes sports betting and the major league teams sue and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 2018, once the court ruled that said that this prohibition on states having sports betting is unconstitutional, then it really it opened the floodgates for states to individually decide whether or not they wanted to allow sports betting. And that's when the free-for-all in terms of lobbying started as the industry went around uh, and sought permission from each individual state to start sports betting. And that's where we're at right now. So they still don't have California. They don't have Texas. There are certain some big states that they still have not gotten legalized. But much of the country, you now have legal sports betting. As things really started to progress and it was you can really see it was kind of the future and it was coming, states wanted to get involved, the sports leagues themselves wanted to get involved. 
uh, you know, everybody wanted a piece of the action. And, and to your point, right now, that's where we're here right now. Now, before we get started on all of this early on, right, there was a lot of opposition when it comes to gambling addiction. I mean, that was really the case against a lot of this is that for, you know, places like Nevada or wherever these other places where it was legal, you know, you had to at least go to a casino or somewhere to make that bet. And this was just going to open those floodgates, the floodgates of addiction, at least. Yeah, I mean, this is the largest expansion of legalized gambling in the United States history because it isn't just that these 31 states now have sports betting, but that half of them have mobile sports betting. And so in any time, in any place, it's right there in your hand. It never, you never turn it off. You're getting enticements uh, from, you know, marketing from that can be targeted to your phone because once you download the app on your social media, you could buy lottery tickets. You could go to a gambling casino before, but now, and you could bet online on your phone off on offshore platforms. But now the states have legally sanctioned you having gambling machine in your pocket that is never turned off. And so it does raise questions about what is this going to mean 10 or 15 years from now? You know, how many young people are getting phones and setting up accounts and betting even though they shouldn't be betting? These are kinds of questions that are out there. Back to the states and the lobbyists and their actions. One of the big selling points with all of this were taxes, how much money a state could make off of taxes. And this one, I mean, it gets really interesting because what we're seeing is the lobbyists saying, hey, you can make millions and millions of dollars on taxes, give us tax breaks on certain promotions we want to add into all this. And and so the revenue from taxes is a a huge one. You spent a lot of time talking about Kansas in particular and how they passed this. What happened there, the reason that the tax dollars are so low, they have a 10%. Originally, the legislation earlier this year called for a 20% tax rate. Then the gambling industry, the casinos went in and said, oh, that tax is too high. You need to cut that tax down because it's going to drive people to the black market, you know, the offshore sites if we, the tax is too high because the odds will be, won't be as, as attractive. So then the state cut the tax in half. But then, you know, snuck into the law was this language that said, if you give away promotional bets that we won't tax, those will be free bets. And the free bets won't be taxed. So in the first two months of operation in Kansas, they've given $34 million worth of free bets. And basically that wiped out most of their taxable revenue. And so they basically paid almost nothing. This was just a little bit of leftover that they paid in taxes. And so their DraftKings and FanDuel are giving tens of millions of dollars of free bets away to try to get you to download their app and get used to get build a habit of, of betting on sports. Um, but they're doing essentially, and, and the state at, the, at this point is making very little in terms of tax revenue. So what happened was that the American Gaming Association had put out a report back in 2017 that projected how much states were going to make in taxes if they legalized sports betting. And the idea was, okay, you could distribute this this consultant's report to the legislators and they could say, oh, well, look at all this money we can make. But then what I did was I updated that report and looked at how much in the same states and the same, you know, in, in the most recent 12 months it actually made. And what I found is that in many of the states, they made a lot less than the American Gaming Association had suggested they were going to. For example, in Virginia, in the most recent 12 months, they had $37 million worth of tax revenues. The American Gaming Association said they could expect to see $57 million a year in tax revenues. In Louisiana, Louisiana has had $33 million of taxes, and the American Gaming Association said you could expect to have about $53 million in taxes. So I looked at the, at 14 states that have mobile betting and tax rates that are in line with what the American Gaming Association had said that they thought they recommended, and I found in 12 of those states, they haven't met the revenue expectations that the American Gaming yeah. Association suggested. Another interesting angle to this were the sports leagues themselves, right? So when they were, uh, you know, people were, were lobbying them, get trying to get them on board with all of this because they were resistant 
at the beginning, they're saying, well, okay, let's work with the FanDuel's, let's work with DraftKings, but use our data, use our proprietary data, and we'll charge you for that. And then that kind of really smoothed a lot of things over for to get the sports leagues ready to go, particularly in baseball and basketball. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, they, the, uh, the major leagues sued New Jersey to try to challenge the law that New Jersey passed, and they went all the way to the Supreme Court to try to stop sports betting. But then once it was, the Supreme Court legalized it, or uh, that overturned the prohibition, and the state started to legalize it, then the Major League Baseball was there with the legislature saying, we want to cut. You know, if you're going to basically be betting on our games, we want a piece of the action. And they sought this thing they called the integrity fee. And it was a significant amount of money that they wanted to be paid out of the, uh, out of the, the net revenues. And that got intense pushback from the casinos. And, and, you know, and so they, and now, and the most recently, after they lost on the integrity fee, they've been seeking to, when I was in Missouri, in Jefferson City, watching the uh, legislature, their debate uh, legalization, it didn't pass this year. I, I traveled to several of the capitals and watched the debates. They were pushing the, the requirement of the league data. And you'd have to pay a fee to get that leaked data. So, yeah, the, the professional teams are seeking to get their cut of, of all this money that's $8 billion a month that's being bet. And then putting this all together, right, we're talking about how sports betting just really blew up across the country. Uh, a lot of your story focused on Kansas and how the bills passed there. And, and, you know, we're talking about lobbyists, you know, talking to lawmakers, getting everybody on board. And, and you know, it, it kind of uh, goes back to old lobbying things, you know, backroom doors and parties and things that are happening. Right. So they even had events. Uh, this was in the final days before the um, legislative session ended there in Kansas where they were going to vote on this. They had an event. It was called Cigars, Cars and Bars. Uh, you know, where a lot of lawmakers uh, went and you know, a lot of the whining and dining was done at, at events like this. Yeah, no, it was pretty incredible to watch uh, the intensity of the of the push. And, you know, these are basically uh, citizen legislators who get paid very little. They have other jobs and they, you know, they 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 come from all parts of Kansas. And and then, you know, literally dozens of lobbyists uh, there were when other than the school groups that walked walk through the Capitol and they talked about democracy and they showed them all the grand building. You know, basically the only other people in the building were the lobbyists. Um, out, you know, there were occasionally, actually I was there during COVID. And so there were, you know, there were, there were some COVID anti-vax protesters and um, occasionally they would come through. But for the most part, it was the lobbyists and the lawmakers. And the lobbyists were, you know, they really, they really pushed them to write the law in a way that the lobbyists wanted. And they, they were able to, to, you know, cut the tax rate in half to get the promotional uh, tax-free promotions in there, um, you know, to, it just they they really to some extent almost dictated the terms of the law yeah. that was going to and 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 they had a lot of influence in the process and and in addition to that they were making campaign contributions and they were having events in which they you know gave them you know food and drinks and cigars it was all happening while I was standing there watching there's a ton a ton of information we couldn't get to right now in the interview um, but it's very thorough so I suggest everybody go out and read Eric's piece on this. Eric Lipton, investigative reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.